Wonderful to see you all. It's uh, great to be continuing in Genesis, looking at these early chapters. It's very exciting to be looking right at the start of the Bible, where it all began. Uh, I'm keen to get into it with you. Why don't we ask for God's help in prayer as we do that? Heavenly Father, help us to understand your good design for us uh, and to embrace it as good because it's from you. And give us a vision uh, for your goodness that is able to expose the lies of the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's passage describes life in the happy land, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's a snapshot here of, uh, of utopia, of paradise, the way things were meant to be, of things that people still now long for. This uh, is a picture in our passage today, a picture of the world before sin. Imagine that, the world with no sin in it. We have a picture of the first marriage. It is an image of perfect relationship with God, with one another, and at peace with the environment. Imagine, just imagine what that would be like. No arguments, no divorce, no famine, no pollution. Utopia. And it really matters for us as Christians because uh, we need to remember this idea. We were made for Eden, for the world before sin. And and we need to understand God's good design laid out for us in these uh, verses. For that is really what life should be like now. Uh, But it isn't because of sin. And yet we should still be striving for such peace. The ideal of life in the happy land, it's one that our society has forgotten. And yet all people still yearn for it deeply. We all long for it. We never really move past it. And I was uh, reminded of this uh, this week as I was reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, by Abir Dib titled, Unhappy Wife, Unhappy Life. Does anyone actually enjoy marriage anymore? Uh, And her article basically sets out examples of all these really unhappy marriages. Uh, You know, she points to the unhappy marriages of celebrities, um, or uh, divorce rates, people uh, having affairs. She speaks of unhappy wives, uh, you know, of mothers, of newborns being deserted by hopeless men. Um, she points out kind of the, the sad jokes. I have one of her cartoons here. This is an example, the, the, of course. The, this is one of the, the ones she has there, you know, like these jokes that people make, the old ball and chain or cartoon like this. And it's kind of funny in a way, but actually when you think about it, it's actually a little bit disturbing. Like, it's really unkind. It's quite unloving. Um, you know, yes, it's, it's, you kind of have a chuckle, and then you think about it, and you're like, actually, that's not that nice, is it? And uh, she says that all of these kinds of jokes are coping mechanisms of people really struggling to live in these unhappy relationships. Uh, And then just when you think you know where she stands, uh, she ends by saying, and I'll quote her, I'll put it up on screen, uh, quote, underneath this bleak view of the reality of marriage is my strong desire for romance and monogamy. Love is the greatest joy in life, feeling secure, excited, intellectually stimulated and supported by companionship. You're like, what? Where did that come from? And it just reminded me that people never really get past this image in the garden of, uh, of, of, ha- of being in healthy, loving relationship with people, with those around them. They never really get past this desire for the security, the peace and the harmony of such a good world, of a world without sin, uh, beautiful 
uh, and so on. And so we never really get past the Garden of Eden. These, these very precious little few verses that we have in today's passage describing life before the fall. And so let's dive into the passage. Let's have a look at it. Uh, life how it was meant to be. I've got a few basic headings. They're pretty simple. We'll go through them. And don't forget, if you've got questions, there's a whole bunch of things that'll come up. Uh, do jot them down and we'll ask them in the question time and I'll, uh, we, can, we can chat about it, see what we all think. But let's begin. Uh, we begin with a garden. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. And so Eden means something like happy place or happy land, uh, paradise, uh, maybe even utopia, something like that. And uh, it was written about as a real place, you notice here, with, a, with an actual geographic location, uh, known geological features. Uh, so as far as the book of Genesis is concerned, this is kind of God's final little bit of uh, creation. So we've had, think about where we're up to in the book of Genesis. We've had days one to seven. God stepped us through the creation. And then now, uh, two verse four starts a new section. God kind of goes back and retells uh, the history of the world. Um, and so that's what we get in 2.4. 2.4 says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning the creation. And so uh, 2 verse 4 kind of does a bit of a rewind and it tells this first part again um, from the perspective of, uh, of man, of Adam. You know, uh, creation is kind of made but almost kind of put uh, on pause uh, until the human is there. Uh, so have a look at verse 5. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land. So the creation's made and it's kind of, it, it sounds like it's been paused waiting for the man. And then uh, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And then uh, verse 9, everything sprouts and all the animals happen. And so we read that God uh, forms the man out of the dust. And you may know uh, there's a little bit of a play on words here. Um, Adama in the Hebrew uh, is ground. Adama means ground. Adam is the man made from the dirt, made from the dust. Adam was formed out of the ground. We're, we're dirt by composition and by name. In verse 8, God places the man in the garden. He has grown in Eden. And uh, God, uh, he, he makes this dirt man a home. That is, that is Eden. I don't know. It, this always reminds me of uh, like with a pet. I don't know if you've ever had a little pet. I had a pet mouse when we were growing up. I don't know why we had a pet mouse. Who would want more mice? But... My parents got me a pet mouse. And so you kind of, you get the cage and you put the little wheel in there and you get the food and the water and you kind of get the, the mouse and you drop it in there. It's very much the way it's described here in this section. Uh, God's retelling the, the creation account and he, you know, I made the world for man and then I dropped him in there and this was his, kind of like a dollhouse except it's a, it's a dirt man house, a garden. But it's significant because it's kind of saying that the people aren't just a byproduct of the creation. No, they were. It was made for them. Uh, we are. We are God's representation, His image in creation. The next key element we're told about is the origin of life. I mean, where does life come from? You know, we've got dirt, we've got chemicals and elements, but how do you get to actual life? Something living. Um, you know, we're ninety-nine percent. Uh, we we share ninety-nine percent of our DNA with the letters. I don't know if you knew that. 99% of our letters is the same as 
uh, our DNA is the same as with a lettuce, but we're completely different. Like we're, we're 99% different from a lettuce when you think about it. To a chemist, if you analyze the elements, we're, we are the same as a lettuce, but to a psychologist, we're completely different, totally unique. And so what's the difference? What, what, is, what is this thing? That, where does life come from? And the Bible seems to say here that the difference is the breath of life from God. Uh, have a look at verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Well, what, a, what a fascinating description of life. The, and... Uh, we kind of see this in the whole passage in Eden. It's the, the passage in Eden is full of these uh, references to God sustaining life, going through it. You know, the, the river flows. God is there and, he, and his breath makes the man. Life is from him. He is sustaining it. Um, it's a very different understanding from our world, from our society, as to what a human being is, what life is. Uh, there's another little play on words here too. Uh, God's breath is his spirit. Uh, breath and spirit are the same word in, in the biblical languages. And so when God breathes uh, life into us, he's giving us his spirit. Beyond, our, you know, beyond just our mental life or our moral life is our spiritual life. Uh, you could say God performs the first CPR here. He gives the breath of life to man uh, and then the man is made alive. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very poetic. You know, even now when someone drowns, we, we breathe air back into them to bring them back to life. Uh, perhaps you're reminded from God that he first breathed life into us. So without God, we would just be dust. Um, but, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, the great uh, passage about resurrection, it tells us that when we die, we return to the dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, uh, and yet, the New Testament tells us that Jesus breathes uh, life into us, making us an eternal living being, so that actually when our bodies die, the person that God makes remains forever. But we, we don't remain just as a floating spirit forever. Rather, um, he, he's, um, somebody's made, we are a spirit, our bodies die, but then the spirit remains, and then the spirit is placed back into another garden, and that's the new creation at the end. Uh, we are once more recreated as a person in, in heaven or in the new creation uh, because we, we were made to have bodies. We were made to be in, in a garden. And so this little picture in Eden here in these verses of God making them in and dropping them in, that's what he will do again at the end as well. We will be given uh, new bodies and we will be given a new creation garden to live in, and that is where we'll be eternally. Another picture in these passages is of uh, uh, God sustaining life in the garden, and that is from the rivers which flow. So uh, just to pick uh, one uh, verse, uh, 2 verse 10, it says, A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. And then there's those descriptions of the rivers. And so scripture in a number of places refers to God as, as kind of being a river sustaining a city garden that comes up in a number of places in Revelation and, and other places like the Psalms. Rivers are they're symbolic of the life-giving presence of God. Uh, you know, the life force, it's not from Star Wars. Uh, the for, life force isn't from Star Wars or it's not from Mother Earth. It's from God. God is where we get life from. God gives and sustains life. 
And so we need to live life with God today and forever. Uh, Despite trying to find it, we can't work out where Eden actually is, where it's physically located. Uh, You know, we're not certain about these rivers, which ones they are, if they're there anymore, all those kinds of things. People have tried to to work it out. Um, That, by the way, is what all those movies are about. You know, people try and find the the source of life, the, the holy grail, the elixir, of, uh, of youth, that kind of thing. There's always some old guy with a professor and some maps, and that's, uh, that's kind of what, what they're all getting at. Um, all we can really do is take God's uh, word at its word. Eden, it says, is a real place, and it was written about as though the people knew what these rivers were and where it was. Uh, but there's no point trying to find it. That's not the point, is it? Well, next we're going to ask, what was the man doing in the garden? What was the man doing in the garden? Were there deck chairs? Was he, was he learning to wakeboard? Uh, I assume there was skinny dipping because uh, there wasn't any clothes. So it must have been some of that. Well, uh, I hate to bring this up. This could be bad news if you've had a really busy week. Uh, you know, if, you've, if you're exhausted and you've been looking forward to retirement, putting your feet up. Uh, but the man in Eden in paradise was working. That's, that's what we're told. The work, it just never ends. Uh, he was serving, in fact. Life in the happy land is pictured as serving God. And so let's think about what this means here. Have a look at verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And so the man is uh, to work, or literally the word work there is to till the ground. Usually it's used uh, when you're kind of sowing crops into the ground. Um, That's what he was doing there. Uh, But you've got to think, this is before the curse. Imagine trying to do gardening without any weeds. So, like, yes, he was working the soil, but imagine gardening without, without weeds. Like, what... What, would, what kind of work would that be? It's hard to imagine what work without a broken world would be. So much of our work is fixing things. I know Tim, you're always going to work fixing the airplanes because they're breaking. Imagine if they didn't break. Like, what would your work be then? So this is a, a, a very wholesome kind of work without the, the frustrations. It's, it's good work um, somehow. Uh, the work... Uh, the word used for work frequently, in fact, is, it's used in a religious sense um, of serving God throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The, this word about work, it's kind of used when it's talking about uh, the priest serving God in a priestly fashion, uh, to do with the tabernacle especially. And the word guard there in verse 15, it's often used talking about the tabernacle as well. In fact, the whole garden scene is littered with these parallels to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, if you remember, the tabernacle was uh, the box where, where God dwelt with his people. It was the place where God was with his people, the place of dwelling. And, and that's what the garden is, right? It's, the, it's this very close place with God. God is there. His people are with them, and they're at peace Together, it's the place where God's presence is, uh, and the priests, you know, in that in that that place, would serve God. And so, I think that is the the image we are given of work in the garden. We're told about work in the the final uh, the new creation. There's little glimpses of that. So, Revelation twenty two three speaks of the the curse of sin being lifted, so that we can serve God in the heavenly city. Uh, and if you remember Jesus and the, and the parables, he, he says, uh, you know, 
to the faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, for you who is faithful with a bit now, much you'll be given uh, in the future. Like you'll be put in charge of much in the future. And so these images come up time and time again of uh, working, serving God in the new creation. But let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, I've, uh, you know, we come now to the tree, the tree uh, in the garden. And uh, I've got to say, I've never really liked fruit, not as much as I like sweets anyway. And ever since I read about the garden and the forbidden tree, I've always been suspicious of apples. It's just it's apples, I don't know. No, not really. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk more about the, the tree of knowledge of uh, good and evil uh, more next week. That's really where we'll zoom in on this, what's happening there with sin in chapter 3 next week. But the, the tree is mentioned before the fall, uh, and it comes up as God tells the man how to live in the garden. Um, the command to work in the garden, it's immediately followed by what you might describe as a kind of a giving of the law, the revelation of God's will. So have a look at verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so you could say that God gives a single command, like it's just one thing, just don't do that one thing. Uh, and he, he draws one line, uh, I give you all the trees to eat, a complete abundance, but just not that one tree. <laughs> Um, and we'll think more about what that tree means and represents next week. Um, but for, in terms of understanding what this garden paradise was, um, more significant than the tree is actually just the fact that there was this prohibition, there was this law. God's law, we see, has always been a part of uh, life as his creation, as humans, hasn't it? Even in the garden. The, in the garden, there was one law, donate from the tree. To eat from the tree was to, to reach for autonomy, uh, it was to, to, to decide what was right or wrong without reference to God's will. Because God, God had told him what his will was. Don't eat from that. So to do that was to, to disregard God. And so even in, even in the Garden of Eden, life in the happy land, the good life, it includes trusting in God's word, in what he says. It's, it includes being obedient to his will. Well, let's keep moving. Next we meet man's match, woman. Uh, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. And so uh, men and women in the Bible, are, they're, they're certainly equal in God's eyes, but they were not made in the same way we see in this passage. Um, and uh, it, it's a striking moment because remember in, in the first seven days there's that repeated refrain God made and it was good and he made and it was good and here it says it was not good something was not good and what was it it was the fact that Adam was alone he was out complement match or, or opposite um, the, the word for, for complement it's the way that salt matches pepper uh, it, it's fit or it's complement. It's, it's not really like a car looking for a wheel or someone looking for a slave. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a match. It's, um, the, reason, uh, the reason it's not good for him to be alone, um, most obviously, is that humans couldn't reproduce. But, but there's so much more going on here than that. Um, the, the aloneness, it's not the same as our society's uh, loneliness, uh, loneliness today. Uh, it's about Adam not having another person to show love to. 
Um, love in the, in the love your neighbor sense. Uh, Adam had no neighbor uh, to love. T- t- if you think about who God is, if you want to get kind of deep, God is not alone uh, before the creation. God is three in one. God's character, there is love within God himself. Uh, even before the creation, God <clears throat> serves the different parts of God. So we hear about the, the Father loving the Son, and we hear about the Son obeying the Father, and so on. Uh, but Adam was there in the garden. He had no such person to love. He, 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 he was not able to love because there, uh, there was no suitable person that was found. Um, you know, I think a key lesson here is we're going to go on and, and um, talk about uh, marriage and that kind of thing. The key lesson isn't that you need to get married. Rather, it's that you need to find people around you as family, brothers and sisters in Christ, to love. Uh, your compliments. You need to love other humans that God finds for you. Love your neighbor. Um, that's how we serve, as in the garden. But let's return to the account uh, where a match for Adam must be made. Uh, God, God, who I guess has always been a bit of a matchmaker, um, you know, he has to find Adam a wife. And um, you've got to remember this is before all the dating apps. Now there's all kinds of apps that you can use if you want to find a date. But this was before the dating apps. And so God has to do it the old-fashioned way, and he, he just kind of lines up the candidates one by one, and, and they're looked at one by one. That's kind of how the account is given, in a funny kind of way. So have a, have a look at verse uh, 19. We'll read. Verse 19 says, So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And uh, whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. And so Adam names the animals. He's showing his uh, dominion over them. But it's, it's the process. You know, one by one they come past. And at the end of it, it says, no match was found. Uh, he looks at every single animal. And then nothing there is like there was, no, there was no other person. And so the tension builds in our story. There are no eligible singles in the area. Uh, what was he looking for? Blonde, brown eyes. What was the criteria? Well, he was looking for a helper. A helper as his complement or match, we are told. I better say that the word helper used of, uh, of uh, the woman, is, it's not diminutive, implying smallness or, or of less value. Uh, God is uh, frequently referred to as a helper using the same word. So there's nothing wrong with being a helper. Well, good, good help is hard to find. Uh, good, it, they can't find a good helper for Adam. And so God has to do things the hard way. He has to make man's match by hand, or by rib, I guess. And so verse 21, God makes the woman. Have a a look at verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place, and then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And so God performs, uh, performs the first operative surgery. He anesthetizes Adam, and then he uh, forms the woman from the rib. Why a rib? I don't know if you've ever asked this question. Why a rib? Uh, you know, people have looked on male anatomy to try and find evidence of a missing rib, but it's, it's kind of missing the point. 
Uh, perhaps the best explanation is from theologians who speculate that the woman was formed from, uh, you know, if she was formed from the head, it would be saying something about, you know, the intellect. Or if it was formed from her foot, you know, you might think, oh, she's to be kept underfoot. Um, if it was formed from the hand, you might think she was to be a worker. But the woman is formed from the rib, taken from the man's side to be an equal. Uh, is the, you know, she's a match, she's his equal which I think is rather poetic and uh, makes some sense of it, but we don't really know why it was the rib. We're not told. Um, but we are told of how uh, Adam reacted when he, when he saw the, the woman that God had made for him. Uh, and compared to the animals, which were, I suppose, all teeth and fur, Adam mu- uh, Eve must have seemed pretty, uh, pretty good, rather angelic, you would think. Adam's response is to burst forth in poetry, uh, which is, it could be the last time a, a husband ever burst forth in poetry, but uh, that's what he does in verse 23. He says, um, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. At last, now you're talking. Adam is, uh, it's good, it's a match. He's happy. But let's think, about, uh, let's think about what's actually being said here about men and uh, women. Kind of, um, yeah, trying to have a bit of fun with the account and the matchmaking, but what's actually being said about men and women? Um, the Bible has got uh, a clear picture about men and women uh, throughout. Uh, they're equal. Um, you know, there's some debate about whether or not their, uh, their, their sex or their gender is uh, for this life only or for the new creation as well. Um, but what is really clear is that they're given different roles in this creation. So they're equal, but they have different roles. And so far we've seen already that Adam um, was created first, and then Eve, the woman, was created second. She was made uh, from, and in a sense, for uh, man. Uh, And in a sense, the origin woman here, the origin story of the woman here, doesn't define women. Uh, Women are not for men. They're not made for men. Uh, women are, you know, throughout Scripture regarded as independent individuals from men. They're, women are equal in God's eyes. You know, for example, they are judged as individual moral beings apart from men. You know, there's no, there's no sense that they're together. They're, they're judged as individuals by God. And so they're, they're clearly, even though the account, it's like Adam was looking for a wife and so the woman comes and yes, he's found a wife. It doesn't mean women are for men in that sense. But in other ways, the origin story that we have here, it does define and set out men's and women's roles in creation uh, that are carried out throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, you know, for example, we saw that Adam names Eve. <clears throat> he, he calls her woman in verse 23. And this naming is because he's been given the role of headship. Uh, men is to lead the woman in marriage and to have leadership in the church. Uh, not not in, in society in general, just in these two areas, Christian marriage and the church. And, and our passage today sets Adam up as the head. And we know this because the rest of the Bible points back to this moment. It's actually a really key moment for, for the rest of Scripture in understanding men's and women's roles. And so I, I think it would be worth taking a moment and picking some of these key callbacks that come up throughout Scripture um, so I'll, I'll pick four key moments in Scripture that refer back to this Adam being made first and given headship. 
So we'll, we'll set through them now. So the first one is Genesis uh, 3.17. At the fall, we'll look at that next week. <coughs> um, but God holds Adam responsible for Eve. I don't know if you're familiar with the passage, but do you remember that they both sin and then God says, well, you shouldn't have obeyed Eve. You shouldn't have done what she said there. That was wrong. And Adam is held responsible because he was considered the head there. Even, even in Genesis, we see that he was already considered to be the head of the first marriage. Um, at this point, you should say that it's not suggesting women are more prone to sin or uh, weaker or more gullible. Uh, it's simply not true. Just think of King David, you know, the, the Bible hero. Uh, he, was, he sinned so poorly. Think of Bathsheba, murder and adultery and so on. It's not... It's not suggesting that men sin less or are less likely to be deceived, and so they're made head. I think it's, I think it's really important that we, we realise that that's not the argument of the Bible anywhere. Um, nothing suggesting women are less able to be leaders in Scripture. That's not the reason Adam is made head. It's just because that's how God ordered it. That was his ordering. It's simply how God ordered creation. It was his decision as the creator owner of all things. It's God's good design, as we'll see in the next few passages. Uh, second key passage is the one that we had for our New Testament reading in Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, it's talking about the family, very much the marriage. Uh, Ephesians 5.22, it says that wives are to submit to their husbands. Um, and so it's a picture of the husband being the head, but it's a picture of self-sacrificial headship, uh, where men, uh, the male, the head, the husband, are to, to self-sacrificially lead uh, the marriage. They're ultimately to um, love the wives as their own body. And the example given is Christ and the church. Uh, and so kind of male domination where, where men oppress women, it's, just, it's not what the Bible's talking about at all. Any kind of forced submission or domination by men it's just, it's wholly condemned by Scripture. God hates it. Rather, the head is to love and care, uh, in this case, for the wife, just as Christ did his church. The other place the Bible refers to the creation of uh, Adam and Eve uh, in, is, uh, is in relation to church, church leadership. You'll notice that uh, here at Snack, only men preach, and that is because the New Testament's really clear on this. Men are to lead the church, and they are to teach and so a uh, uh, couple of passages that point to that really clearly is um, 1 Corinthians 11.8. It, uh, it says, because uh, Eve came from Adam, uh, that the men are to have uh, leadership in the church. That's the reason that's given. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And then the, the fourth passage, finally, is uh, 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2.12 and 13. And again, the same message. It said that, in the church, men are to, to have authority uh, and to teach. So they are to be running the church and teaching in it. And why? It says because Adam was made first. Uh, that is the order that it, uh, God has set up for the creation. That, that uh, These are the roles that he puts in place. And women's roles, uh, they're given as different. So in, uh, in 1 Timothy 2.13, it says women, uh, their role is childbearing, Faith, love, holiness, and good judgment. This is the list that's given. Uh, so men and women are to have different roles. They're to live their lives as followers of Jesus in slightly different ways, uh, both according to Scripture, all to God's glory.
The most, the most obvious uh, difference between men and women is uh, childbearing. Like, I, I can't have children. It's not... And uh, I didn't realise that it was such a big thing until I've watched Nikki have kids, and it's, it's a pretty big thing. <laughs> um, it's not like the only... It's not the defining characteristics of women, but it is the most obvious difference between men and women. And, uh, and the Bible's not afraid to say that, even though our society, you're kinda, you feel like you can't mention it. Um, but th- <clears throat> what that means is, we're, as a society, because we don't acknowledge that as being significant, it means the, kind of, the creation is set up one way by God, and the society is kind of not really in tune with it, kind of trying to, trying to do something different, and it means it misses things. You know, we, we can't truly care for <clears throat> some of the vulnerable. So um, some of the most vulnerable people in our society are single mothers and the children that they're caring for. But if we haven't co- correctly understood the creation order, we can't care for the vulnerable in the way that we should. Excuse me. <coughs> well, let me, uh, let me continue uh, thinking about this together, men and women. The, the picture in Eden, it's, it's where they're in harmony together. So verse uh, 24, it talks about um, the husband leaving the uh, the man leaves the father and the mother, and he bonds with his wife. It says they become one flesh, <clears throat> and it's a great image of the way men and women are to complement each other, to match each other. They come together and they create children, uh, and they care for them, uh, and uh, and it, it, it's a it's a great picture, kind of lost in many ways by our society of the the grandness of this. Image most profoundly, verse twenty-five says, "Both the man and the wife were naked, yet felt no shame." Men and women, they they didn't compete, they didn't fight. Rather, they they loved each other, they cared for each other, they felt no shame. Uh, and and so, how badly we've lost this great image for humanity that we see in the garden. It's such a, a radically different understanding of who men and women are that our society has. Uh, and yet for us trying to live God's good design, we, we want to embrace his order. We want to embrace the roles that he's set out for us in the creation and he told us about in his word. Uh, you know, men need not to abuse their God-given position of headship in, in church and, and marriage. Um, and men have so often abused that throughout history. Uh, rather, they need to self-sacrificially love women in those settings. And women need to embrace the God-given image of their humanity as a woman, accepting the leadership of men and family and church. Uh, and in this, men and women can both look to Christ. See, Christ does both of these roles uh, perfectly. Christ, if you think about it, Christ submits to the Father he, he obeys the Father, and that's how he saved the church. He, he, you know, he obeyed the Father even to church. Uh, and he also, as head of the church, laid down his life self-sacrificially. Christ fulfills the roles of both men and women in submitting and in being head, sacrificing himself. Well, if I can leave us with one uh, final radical countercultural image from our passage, uh, that is the, of union, coming together. Uh, men and women becoming a new family. You know, in the culture that this was written in, the family was like pretty sacred and you, you couldn't go against your family. 
And yet this passage says that the, the, father, the husband, the men and the woman, to come together and to leave their parents and to make a new family. It would have been like unbelievable that this was being said. It's no big deal in our society. But back then it was a, it was a very radical thing to be saying. Uh, and that's the passage that, uh, it's the image that our passage today ends with. Uh, and it really it is a, an image of God making a new family, of bringing people together through ultimately Christ's sacrifice. Because uh, that is what we are. We are one family here, isn't it? Because of what Christ has done. And we see that. We see that marriage uh, reflects that, we are told in the New Testament. So verse 24 says, Men and women in marriage become one flesh. They feel no shame. In the image of becoming one flesh, uh, it's a way of saying Adam and Eve, of course they were close, uh, physically, uh, relationally, but the really significant thing is that they become a new family. Um, Men and women, you know, a man and a woman are there, they're just friends. But then in marriage, they, they become a new bloodline, don't they? Uh, much more. They become related in a way that uh, a brother and a sister are related. A new family is formed. And that's the description of what uh, Christ has done in the church. That's what we are, as I say. Um, Christ does to all of his followers. We're united by him, by his blood. Uh, we are children of God, all one family together. And so that men and women, sons and daughters of Adam can now be one flesh in Christ. Uh, Now we all here are brothers and sisters in the same way, a new family in Christ. I think that's a good way to end. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, give us a vision for your good design and help us to understand your roles for us in creation and to embrace them as we trust that you alone are good. Father, guide us with your spirit through this very broken world where much is not as it should be and help us to wait with eager anticipation for the final garden, the new creation, where all this will be made perfect and your great plan of peace for all will finally be made real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.